zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing King of the Mountain, released May 1st, 1981. It was written by Lee Chapman and H.R. Christian, based on an article by David Barry, not Dave Barry, directed by Noel Nosick, and released by Universal Pictures. On July 31st of 1978, New West Magazine published an article called Thunder Road by David Barry, not Dave Barry, about the Mulholland Racing Association. I have to assume the film was at one point called Thunder Road, but another working title, Mulholland Drive, was obviously later used by Elephant Man director David Lynch. So Mulholland Drive wasn't taken at the time because that movie came later. Correct. And Thunder Road wasn't taken. But it has been taken but it has since been then. taken since. Very recently by Jim Cummings, the writer-director who plays the cop and the, the lead character. Did I show you the trailer for that, Thunder no, Road? No, Oh, it, oh wait, no. I the, Okay, Thunder Road. Sorry. My, my brain has been locked for some reason. The moment you said Thunder Road, my brain went, went to Bruce Springsteen. Oh, okay. And I'm trying to think of like- Thunder <gasps> it Rolls? It went to music? Yeah, it went to Good Bruce- Good job, well, Richard. <laughs> it went to Bruce Springsteen <laughs> because of the movie Explorers when they, oh. named their, <laughs> they named their ship the Thunder Road. Oh, okay. And and, and Jason Preston is like is like- you know, because it's from a Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen song. Yeah. I, I like, love that the only reason you know a musical reference is because somebody it mentioned in a movie. it in a movie yeah. that you like. <laughs> He's never heard it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought I was going to throw you off by saying Jim Cummings, and you're going to be like, wait a minute, Jim Cummings is a voice actor. Yeah, like, yeah. No, he's also a writer-director. Very talented one. He's very active on Twitter. He has funny stuff, mm-hmm. too. So he directed, I don't know if I've seen the the trailer for it. For Thunder Road? Road. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I showed it to you. What was it about? Um, he's like a patrol officer or a yeah, cop or something? Yeah, I think he's a cop and either he does something wrong or oh. something terrible happens to someone in his family and he has kind of a meltdown at a funeral. Yes, yes. Okay, I do remember that. I think it was based on a short, too. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he paid for the whole thing himself, like found the investors and everything and, and did everything himself in a real self-made feature film situation. But that's not the voice actor. Correct. Right. No. Different. Younger guy. Diff- much different younger. Different Jim Cummings. Yeah. Okay. Got it. This film was initially set to star Brad Davis, who played Leonardo da Vinci Rossi in A Small Circle of Friends last year, and John's brother, Joey Travolta, but neither appear in the film. Davis was fired due to drug problems and replaced with Harry Hamlin. Pre-production seems to have been a bit of a mess. Richard Compton was the first director attached. And two more were attached and removed on the way to the credited director, Noel Nosick. Compton was also the third screenwriter brought on to fix the script. The sixth and seventh screenwriters were Lee Chapman and Larry Gross. Larry Gross, who in 82 would find success co-writing 48 Hours for Walter Hill. In the end, Chapman shares her screenwriting credit with a previous screenwriter, H.R. Christian. Money was raised from foreign markets by signing Dennis Hopper to the cast. Director Nosick said he was very difficult to work with and never had any of his lines down. And I think that shows in the final product. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was shot on location in the Mulholland, Coldwater, and Hollywood areas. We start with overhead shots of curvy canyon roads in the greater Los Angeles area and specifically Mulholland Drive. We push in on a Porsche Speedster as we hear narration from its driver, Steve, as played by Harry Hamlin. Which is odd. I don't like voiceover narration unless it's part of of the narrative of the film yeah and this is not yeah it's just him telling us the story as if he just wrote this book Mm -hmm. this opening would be just as effective without him saying anything just showing the footage of the car driving i'm going to disagree with you i think it'd be more effective (laughs) 23 miles of mulholland slicing los angeles like a knife it's like a trip in time sometimes i just can't wait for night you see too much in the sunshine road's changing. Civilization's choking it. At night, the straightaways are shorter, turn sharper, the drop steeper. 
it's the only place I ever felt safe. Clear, clean, and fast. Do you think that maybe Mulholland Drive just wasn't known in 1981? And so... No, I think people have been racing on it since the 50s. But, like, I'm just saying that, you know, pop culturally, people really know it now, but they wouldn't have in 1981. I like, don't think people know it now. You don't think so? I mean, they, they if you hear the words Mulholland Drive, you, you probably the think of the David Lynch movie. Yeah. But I don't think that that movie correlates to the actual road as much as this one does. Yeah. I like driving sometimes, and in Los Angeles, I'm probably in the minority enjoying driving, but... All this talk romanticizing driving, like specifically driving recklessly down Mulholland, never comes off as authentic. Mm-hmm. Like every time he tries to make it sound real great, it just comes off as a guy making up a personality for himself because he thinks that it sounds cool to want to drive fast down a road. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to have a real hard time connecting to this movie at all the entire time because I'm not, I don't enjoy driving really. Right. And I don't understand car culture at all i don't either but so, I, it was a big thing in los angeles for a long time no and i get that but i don't get these people in this movie no being i don't either cars. well i feel like this movie is less about car culture i mean race or street racing uh, but they don't go like they don't like open up the hood and say, "Oh, you got a such and such leader." Blah, yeah, blah. they're actually not even talking about the cars. Yeah, they, they don't talk. They're about... just talking about the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think that helps. I think I think that helps for for someone like me who doesn't know anything about cars that they they're not trying to to you know because even the Fast and the Furious movies got away from that in the first movie that that it was all about what you have under the hood. They talk right, about right, it, right. They break it down. But I feel like. For me, those movies work better because I agree. I understand that this is a person who's passionate about their craft and are trying to develop a skill. And, like, I don't really. And additionally, I can understand car movies where the car is like a tool, a means to the end. Like, it's part of, it's an essential part of the heist or it's an essential part of the getaway plan or whatever it is. Um, but here it's just like, I just like to go fast down a curvy road. Yeah, and, and it's also really corny with stuff like, oh, it's the only place I ever felt safe. And it's like, the only place you ever felt safe is going hundreds of miles an hour on the edge of a cliff. Like, what do you mean? What does safe mean to you? Because to me, that means that's unsafe. And that's not even close yeah, to the definition of safe for anybody. But he's trying to sound cool. That. That's that's what it yeah. comes across as. It just comes across as a guy trying to sound cool and lying to us about what he enjoys yeah. in an effort to sound cool. And it doesn't come across that way. Also, technically, the Speedster is a modded VW bug with a replica body with inaccurately flared fenders. The actual Speedsters would be hard to come by and prohibitively expensive to potentially damage. For the whole rest of the film, it is never believable when the characters talk about driving like a religious experience. It just comes across as super corny. And when you make Fast and the Furious look not corny, yeah, then right? you're doing a terrible job. <laughs> I feel like Vanishing Point really got across the love of the road much better yes. than this one does. Yeah. And it did that by not talking about it. I was going to say, yeah, he never talks about All it. All the clumsy monologuing is just sad to listen to. But here it just sounds like someone filling out a Tinder profile. I wonder who it'll be tonight. I hope he's fast. Maybe it's a grander profile. <laughs> the music starts bumping and we fade tonight. Cars challenge each other to race at every red light along the streets of Hollywood. A whole collection of cars gather at a lookout point along Mulholland. Steve and another driver pull up alongside each other and send representatives to discuss the terms of their race. Steve's buddy whose name is Buddy, talks to the other driver's <laughs> man, and they want to race for a Benjamin. But they call it $100 because they're losers. <laughs> it's, this seems like such low stakes. Yeah, uh, and he's like, hold on, dude. They want to race for 100 And it's like, he made it sound like that was too big a deal. Like, that's oh, too rich for my blood. It's like 100 bucks. That's not very much when people are usually racing for the pink slips of the car. Right? Yeah. Yes. Buddy seems hesitant, but Steve agrees to the terms. Road flares are placed in the street to block the road from civilian traffic. 
The race begins and we get a quick shot of Dennis Hopper as Cal leaning out of his truck and chugging from a liquor bottle while watching the race from afar. Steve does a lot of talking out loud in his car. Not a chance, pal. Not a chance. We see Cal is timing the race on a stopwatch. A pair of cops find the road flares and decide the smartest way to break up this race is to blast up the road toward the racers and kill them with a head-on collision. <laughs> like the police car literally drives up at the race yeah. as yeah. they're coming down. When the audience watching the race hears the sirens, they all scatter, and suddenly the two cars racing are in a helicopter spotlight. I, I like one of the young women who was in the crowd goes, my dad's going to kill me. <laughs> and I was like, what? It's like they're not going to arrest all of you. You can't get arrested for for, for, for spectating. Right. Can you? Depends on what can. you're spectating. I don't think you can. You could be loitering. Mm. Both racing cars pull over, and Steve is read a list of the laws that he's broken by chopper cops speaking through a megaphone. Later, we see Buddy stopped by a police roadblock, and he lies that he wasn't watching the race just passing through. You're full of shit. <laughs> yes, sir. Move it out. You got it. Steve is cuffed and tucked into a squad car, and we cut to Roger's home, where he's preparing for a night out. He takes a few pills on his way out the door, and suddenly he hears Buddy's car rumble up to the house. Buddy starts to explain what happened on the mountain, and Roger cuts him off when he extrapolates the punchline. <laughs> Helicopter arrives they in the scene, Steve, puts huh? the beam down on everyone. You two are a couple they of assholes. Well, I can only speak for I myself. Really, I, I can't believe you guys still get anything out of running that mountain. I can't believe it. I am 100% on Roger's side of this argument. Yeah. Except for the fact that he used to do it himself. Yeah, and he stopped doing it because he decided it was stupid. Is that why he stopped? Well, he wrecked a car. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Buddy puts out a hand looking for 200 bucks bail money, and Roger flips out. He's booked them time at a studio 15 minutes from now, and they still need to find another musician. You go now. Who are we going to use for a keyboard player? He's in jail right now. Roger gives him the money, and Buddy promises to get Steve to the studio ASAP. We cut to Steve and Buddy walking out of the jail, only to find a bunch of street toughs have Buddy's car blocked in with theirs. While Buddy tries to negotiate with them, Steve actually gets into their car, somehow. I don't understand how he got into this car. He doesn't have, like, a Slim Jim or anything. He doesn't break the window. He just opens the driver's side door and gets in. I think it's Steve's car that they're blocking in, though. Right? No, right. no. No, it's Buddy's no. car. It's it's Buddy's car that's blocked in, but he gets into the bad guy's car, yeah, not yeah. not their car. Because more than likely Steve's car has been impounded. That makes sense. Steve actually gets into the driver's seat somehow and hot wires the car. Buddy hops in and they drive off in the stolen car. On the way to the studio, Buddy is obviously worried that they're going to destroy his car, but Steve assures him they won't. A 10 to 1 they will not touch your car. What are we basing that on? Yeah. His car is going to be burned to the ground if yeah. they ever come back for it. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I guess if I was thinking about it, like if I was trying to like go through the emotions of the wronged party here, which yeah. is the street toughs, um, I would be like, oh, they stole our car. Let's burn their car down. It's like, oh, I'd be like, hold on a second. Let's think of this through. No, would that part happen? Would that step yeah. happen where yeah. you say, hold on a second, let's think this through? Yeah. Or would they say, fuck this guy? Well, yeah. See, see, I, I, I agree. I think that they would just say, fuck this guy. The long-term ramifications would be, it's like, well, wait a minute. We burned their car. Now they have absolutely no incentive to come to back. Return hours. To return hours. Yes. Also, you're sitting out front of a police station. Not the best place to burn a car to the ground. Yeah. And the car that they have has all of our information in it. In the form of the registration. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I suppose Which, they could break into this car yeah. and find out where they live. That's true. Or where at least where They just buddy kill lives. Buddy in the middle of the night. <laughs> that would have been a better movie. Steve tells him to get the registration out of the glove compartment and use it against them. We cut to the studio where Deborah Van Valkenburg as Tina performs vocals on a song called Dangerous Strangers. I'm assuming the title. But that's the chorus. I like the rhyme, if, if that's considered a rhyme, of Dangerous Strangers. Yeah. Like, I like it. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's not. <laughs> it's not a rhyme, just so you know. It's a slant rhyme, if anything. Slant rhyme, that's the word I was trying to find. Somewhere in my brains. In the booth, everyone looks really happy with the take. After they finish the song, Tina moves into the booth where she's introduced to Steve. It's up to Buddy if this is good enough to pass along to Barry Tanner, the studio's owner, and after they listen to some playback, he seems to approve. 
Steve and Tina exchange a few flirty glances. Later that night, Steve catches her sneaking out of the studio to head home. Do you have a ride? I've got a car. Well, I don't. Because it's got him pounded. Slick. As she drives him home, she admits that she wanted him to follow her, and he tells her that he already knew that. She asks him to hand her her driving whiskey, and she takes a big swig and then offers him one. <laughs> For some reason, she needs him to hold the wheel while she drinks one-handed, though. I thought that was weird. You can't just drink with one hand and drive with the other like the rest of us. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you enjoy driving. <laughs> Steve's reputation precedes him. She tells him that she's aware of his driving prowess and asks if it's okay to stop by her place first. Steve obviously doesn't object. At first, I thought she would at least have a fake task she needed to take care of at home, but when they get there, she just puts music on and offers him drinks. <laughs> she tells him she's going to go change outfits and she'll be right back to drive him home. We cut across town to Roger's living room, where everyone from the studio ended up. Steve is only just getting to the house at 6 a.m., so she must have taken a really long time to change. I, I don't know if that was the implication. <laughs> what else could they have done? <laughs> he enters the house as Buddy's leaving, and Buddy warns him, Watch out for falling rocks. Whatever that means. Inside, he finds his girlfriend, Iris, waiting for him. Oh, I guess that's what that means. You're in danger. He lies that he couldn't get to a phone, and she basically says, Don't worry about calling me ever again, and leaves. Later, Buddy finds Steve playing slot racers for Atari 2600, special thanks to at Tom C. McFadden on Twitter for identifying the game from my screenshot. <laughs> Buddy asks if Steve and Iris have set a date, and Steve jokes that they have. They tell Roger, too, and he doesn't seem to realize they're being sarcastic, and offers his congratulations. We hard cut to a Corvette blasting through a set of trash cans on a residential street. Yeah, th this, this, this shocked me. Like, yeah. like, cause they're, they're sitting around kind of like drinking beers and I'm like, you know, I'm paying attention and I got kind of like the volume like turned up cause it's like a quieter scene, but then when it cuts to just, yeah. it's like, ah, and then after that, it skids around a corner, barely missing some terrified joggers in the car. We see Dennis Hopper as Cal gripping the wheel and watching the stopwatch that he has scotch taped to his rear view mirror. He clips a bunch of traffic cones on a turn and sends them flying off a cliff. We see a yellow Porsche 911 Turbo roll up to a body shop, and Steve gets out of it in a dirty body shop uniform. Behind him, we see a man pushing a Porsche 911 Carrera RSR as Cal walks beside it. The second car seems dead, but Cal is not helping to move it at all. He's just improvising completely bizarre dialogue. There's only one thing worse than cars that won't run. It's pushing a car that won't run. Now there's one thing worse than that, man. That's holding up a dead body. Lifting it up, yeah. Especially if it's yours. What the fuck are you talking about, Cal? <laughs> oh, I thought I thought at first I thought he was going to be like some kind of like making some kind of Vietnam reference. Yeah. Um, face down in the muck. Yeah. Uh, but then he talks about it, especially when it's your own. Yeah. And I was like, oh wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Cal tells Steve that somebody stopped by looking for him. What'd you tell her? What'd I tell her? Yeah. I told her you had a small dick, man. Friend. You are a good friend. That night, Steve gives Tina a tour of the road they drive. He points out the grandstand. That's the crowded lookout point where everyone watches from. She asks if people ever go over the edge, and he admits that it happens all the time, because if you're not riding the edge, you'll lose the race. He points out a few more nicknamed curves, Boogeyman, Dead Man's Curve, Sweeper. She asks who names them. Steve has no idea, but people have been racing up here since the 50s. So whoever did it, they did it a long time ago. He tells her that 15 years ago, Cal crashed hard on this road, and they had to put him back together. Cal took this whole club more seriously than anybody. Steve finds Buddy on the road and challenges him to a race to entertain Tina. <laughs> Winner takes the pink slip. Winner takes the girl. We don't really see the race end, and we cut to Carney's train car diner on Ventura as they take their table. Steve tells her about a time that Roger wrecked on Mulholland. I can't picture Roger racing. He had this green Camaro that could really fly. He hit the mountain and wrapped it around a telephone pole, but he was all right. He showed up later in his Jag and went around the course once, but never again. 
We get another bit of Steve talking about how he used to need to run the course before bed, like a spiritual addiction, and again, it all rings very false. Like he's trying to impress her with his infatuation for the road. Yeah, he he goes on and on talking about how well he knows it and that it's yeah. his mountain, he owns it. Yeah. And, and there's like a pause, and I thought, okay, he's going to show some humility or like say like, but one day it'll take my life, or and it's like, and nope. like nope, nope, it's just the end over. Of the scene. It was the first place where where people talked about me when I wasn't there. How could you possibly know that? <laughs> you weren't there. <laughs> Steve tells her he had the course memorized and he basically owns it, and Tina doesn't know how to respond because that's just pathetic to care about this crappy stretch of mountain road. She just sits there, like, she doesn't look at him like like she's interested in him. She doesn't look at him like she's waiting for him to say another thing. She just looks at him like, okay, huh. The next day, we see Steve park on the road and step out to inspect a curve up close. Back in the shop, we see Cal working on his Corvette. We cut to a profile of Steve pulling his fake Porsche up to the shop. Cal climbs into the bed in the garage to pretend like he just woke up and wasn't working on his car. I don't know why this matters. Yeah. Steve shares with Cal a feeling he had on Sweeper last night. That's one of the turns. Uh, He says that it was like a bolt of lightning went through him and connected him to the ground. What is it, Cal? It's fear, man. Fear. It's a monster. Cal is back to nonsense improv mode. <sighs> the whole world, man. Just, uh, just blurs and thunders. Makes that car of yours like uh, a runaway knife. You know what I mean? Basically, it's just a thrill maker. You understand what I mean? A thrill maker. But he's a cannibal. And you're gonna hear all sorts of things. You're gonna hear him ripping and tearing and, and all over the place. All around you, you understand what I mean, mister? Yeah, I got it, thanks, Cal. <laughs> Why do I keep fucking asking this guy abstract questions? Uh, <laughs> this, whole, this whole bit reminds me of the pinky in the brain when, when there's a character who's supposed to be Dennis Hopper and he's just spouting nonsense <laughs> and, and Pinky just goes, wasn't that Dennis Hopper? <laughs> we cut to Roger's kitchen where Buddy is making a sandwich and in an adjacent room, Steve and Tina are fucking. Roger comes home and sees the sandwich, but Buddy is very protective. Eventually, he offers Roger the third bite of the sandwich. The, the, this whole conversation and this whole bit is my favorite part of Yeah, the I really like their interactions with each other. <laughs> He lets Roger know about the lovebirds in the next room, and Roger gets the impression that Buddy is a little bothered by it. They channel the conversation into a new song. Romeo and Juliet get you so upset? Romeo and Juliet get you so upset? Uh, 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 uh. Romeo and Juliet ain't got me upset. Eventually, the song is loud enough that it's annoying the shit out of Steve, but he's happy to see that it doesn't bother Tina much because she's going to have to deal with this a lot because he's going to live in their spare room forever because he drives for a living. It also bothers me. These songs are not good. This song is the best song of the whole bunch. No. Romeo and Juliet got me so upset. Don't you know you're the teacher's pet? Romeo and Juliet got me so upset. And it's uh, your apartment that I want to let. You didn't like Dangerous Stranger? No, I didn't. No, they were all pretty bad, actually. They discussed their childhoods, and Tina's always had a crowded house, but Steve's dad was distant and often shook his mother's hand in place of a kiss. We cut to another race on Mulholland. The opponent gets an early lead and blocks the road for a while until Steve taps him off course and then blasts down the rest of the track. I wouldn't have thought this was allowed, like making contact with the other cars. But he seems to send him down the road. Right. Because now you're out for blood? Yeah. Like, I mean... Is this a death race? (laughs) Cal is impressed by Steve's time according to his stopwatch. It looks like he may have beaten Cal's record even. We cut back to the studio where Roger is mixing another track called One Night Stand. Suddenly the audio cuts out and the studio owner Barry Tanner enters, played by Seymour Cassell. He takes a seat on the couch in the booth and tells Roger the songs are good and Buddy writes hit songs. 
Sorry, it's the same song it was before. It's still uh, Dangerous Strangers. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's just that's a different lyric that she she's saying earlier too. Like, are you looking oh, okay. for love or is this one night stand? It's still Dangerous Strangers. Oh, okay. Well, then I don't know what the song is called. Well, because you're just making up names of songs. <laughs> well, that's how you do it. You just pick <laughs> the words that seem to be the center of the chorus, and that's the name of a song. Every song. <laughs> Even the song Jessica from the Allman Brothers Band. There's no words. <laughs> but then in the middle of the chorus, they say Jessica. No. No, they don't. There's no words. <laughs> There's no words on there. Fuck it. We'll do it live. <laughs> He takes a seat on the couch in the booth and tells Roger the songs are good and Buddy writes hits. He asks Roger to try and make a deal with him to sell the songs to Tanner so that he can record them with another group called Cadillac Blue. I need what I just heard for Cadillac Blue. They're dry. They need material. And I want an album out on them before Christmas. Roger was obviously hoping they could release the songs as their own group and tells Tanner that he doesn't think Buddy would go for it. You think he's a songwriter? He's not shit. When I cut his material, that's when he becomes a songwriter, huh? But you just said the songs are great, and he writes hits. That means he's a songwriter. Well, and you want it for an already famous band. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, that means it's good. Tanner asks if he wants to be a legit producer, or if he wants to go around peddling his friend's crappy music, and Roger finally rolls over and offers up the deal. But doesn't that mean he's peddling the crappy music? basically yeah yeah because if you were a producer then you'd be producing it yourself <laughs> yeah but he promises to get buddy on board we cut to tina and the band waiting on a stage for some kind of response from tanner about their music they're getting very impatient i believe it's the greek theater that's what i thought too but i was like they're not big enough to be playing a show here unless they just like got in somehow no, but it looks like it because it's a pretty big venue and it's yeah. outside Buddy starts shouting a message to Roger that he hopes will reach him supernaturally. Roger! I know you can hear me, brother! I know you can! Well, I believe in you! I love you! My songs love you! My goddamn piano loves you! And I know you're gonna make one hell of a deal to fill this place so that people don't think I'm nuts! for making speeches to 5,000 empty seats. Roger shows up late at night mildly intoxicated at his home. He pounds on the door repeatedly groaning out Stephen's name until he wakes up an angry neighbor woman. Stephen! Knock it off down there! You know what time it is? Oh, no, what time is it? You want the cops, asshole? I'll get the cops. I'm gonna call the cops right now, jerk off! When Steve finally answers the door, Roger drunkenly apologizes for blowing the deal. They tell him it's okay, and they're sure he did his best. Roger begs Steve to take him on a drive so they can talk about what happened in private. We cut to the grandstand. Roger tries to identify passing cars by ear with his eyes closed. Sounds like a Z car. <laughs> you still got a good ear, Roger. Yeah. Between the last scene and this one, Roger has apparently told Steve everything, and now he's encouraging Roger to share the information with Buddy, who will be the most upset. Well, he hasn't shared it with everything. Right. Yeah, well, that's what he bothers me. He lied to him me. about part of it. Yeah, that's what bothers me about the scene is, like, I wanted to hear him relay what was happening so I'd right. understand that perspective of what he's sharing. Yeah. Because from, from what you would gather from this scene, based on the information, he has told Steve everything. Right. Including the that they're not going to perform right we get a, a, a second revelation later that that's not the case but yeah the, well i think i think at this point steve knows that they won't be performing the music but he doesn't know who will be performing the music i thought the implication here is that he told him everything that we saw yeah i have no idea yeah because <laughs> we didn't see it because <laughs> all we saw was him say i want to buy the songs but they're going to be for another band and they're called cadillac blue show don't tell right this is a case of tell instead of show we cut to buddy pounding out the end of a new song on the piano when steve and roger finally show up he can tell by the look on their faces that it's not good news he tells buddy that tanner likes the songs and he wants to establish buddy as a songwriter with a publishing deal intending for his music to be performed by another group buddy is obviously not excited to hear that they won't be playing their own music you have to level with them roger 
Tanner's buying your songs as a favor to Roger. So this is a lie mm-hmm. that Roger made up to make Buddy feel better about the fact that he made this yeah. lesser deal yeah, because he's like oh well otherwise he wouldn't have taken the songs at all so i owe roger everything now right but he's making his friend feel shittier about his skills right and and he's having steve say this and we don't know again if steve is aware of the truth or if steve or is making this up on his own they eventually talk buddy into approving the sale but he's clearly pissed about it at the auto shop cal is working on something with very loud tools and one of his co-workers tries to get his attention and makes the mistake of touching him. Cal freaks out on the guy, and it nearly comes to blows, but Steve manages to break up the fight, and then Cal starts going after him, probably because he's jealous of the time Steve is making coming down the hill. After the second fight is broken up, Cal is very vocal about regretting not beating the shit out of Steve. Oh, I should have kicked his butt. Man, I should have mopped the floor with his royal highness on your ass! We cut to a party being thrown by Tanner to commemorate the sale of Buddy's music. Roger notices Steve and Tina arriving at the party and crosses a very crowded room to greet them. So this seems like a very odd party to throw. Yeah. For the sale of music. I think that's what it's supposed to be for. Right? But it does seem weird. It's like, hey, you surrendered. Let's have a surrender party. Yeah. We'll have like white flags. Yeah. Th- this this isn't like, uh, like the Apple... Yeah, we didn't just sign a full record deal with us. Yeah, exactly. It's just like you sold a couple of songs that aren't going to be – it would have been something if if the Cadillac Blue – Was already there. Was there. This was a party for them about their new album that will be coming with these songs. Buddy shows up moments later and apologizes for his attitude this morning. He says he went to the beach to chill out and it just comes across as though he's still very angry and he's planned something to sabotage this whole deal, but that's not the way the scene plays out, so I guess he's just actually happy now. Tanner approaches the friends and announces before Roger has the chance to that the four songs he bought will be recorded by Cadillac Blue very soon. After he walks away, Buddy is pissed off all over again to learn that the songs were good enough for Cadillac Blue but that Roger couldn't negotiate for their own band to perform them. Whether he knew it or not, Steve was clearly lying when he said Tanner's only buying the songs as a favor because Cadillac Blue is his number one artist and he wouldn't just give that person shitty songs. Even Steve here accuses Roger of having sold Buddy out. Buddy gets in his car and he drives angry all the way to the mountain where Cal is raving out loud to himself about all the youngsters taking over his sport. Steve gets in a car to follow Buddy. Cal is shouting to the sky, begging for a challenger. He's even challenging pedestrians off the street. Hey, you want to race? I don't even have a car. Yeah, I'll have your father buy you one. Other racers refuse to challenge Cal, freely admitting he is the best, until Buddy pipes up, agreeing to a race. Cal is in his truck here, not the Corvette, but still keeps up with Buddy. The race is on, and it looks like every other race we've seen so far, because it's the same stretch of road at the Mm -hmm. same time of night, so cars turn and then they turn again. Steve finally makes it to the grandstand and asks if anyone's seen Buddy. They point him to the cars racing off in the distance and explain he challenged Cal to a race. Eventually, the race ends in a fireball when Buddy crashes hard after taking a turn too fast. And this isn't Cal's fault. This is just Buddy was going too fast on the turn. Steve watches Buddy's car burn for a while, and then we cut to hours later as a tow truck pulls its charred remains down the road. Steve mourns his friend's death by repeating that he took the turn too fast and then shouting Buddy's name to the heavens. We cut back to the shop where Cal is working on his car some more, the Corvette. I don't know cars well enough to have a clue in the world what he's doing to it, but it seems like he's doing something on purpose. He takes parts out, he taps them against each other. (laughs) Who knows? I don't know. It's exactly what I would do if Mm -hmm. I was pretending to fix a car. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> just take random pieces off it and clang yep. them against each yeah, other there you go. car 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 uh, it's fixed <laughs> are they are they humming when you clink them together no i can hear the ocean in this wrench oh this is a shell at the shop the next day the bigger guy who seems to own the place tries to tell steve to take the day off but he'd rather distract himself with work steve notices the perpetually deconstructed corvette is gone boss man leads steve to the back room and tells him how it occurred to him randomly 15 years ago that he was done with racing the mountain it's over for you too now you have nothing to prove 
doesn't matter to anybody but Cal. Don't you understand that? You don't need that race. He does. You think about that. I want you to think about it real hard. But what did he have to prove before this race? I don't know. Like, it's not like something happened that he accomplished. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand that you lost a friend, and this is a reason why you've come to terms with why this is stupid and you should stop. But, like, why is it suddenly that he has nothing to prove? And and, and, and Cal is just some washed-up has-been. So, yeah, I get that maybe this is his thing and he, he needs to base his self-worth on this. Also, he probably has pretty traumatic brain injuries from that yeah. crash that he had 15 years but ago. But I don't understand the difference that this has made to Steve. Yeah, I don't know why. In terms of proving yeah, himself. Yeah, because the whole premise is that this guy is pretending to like racing, and so he does it every weekend so that people believe that he likes it. But he actually doesn't. He hates racing. He doesn't even like driving in his car. He wishes Uber existed. <laughs> We cut to Steve and Tina in a bathroom as she brushes her hair. She's getting ready for a show at the Roxy, and she invites Steve along, but he has plans on the mountain. I won't bring him back, you know. This sounds like a deep line, but he doesn't think that it's going to bring him back. He's not doing this as revenge. He's doing this out of boredom. Yeah. Because he has nothing better to do with his life. A limo arrives for Tina, and they share a kiss before parting ways. Uh, Steve and Tina, not the limo driver. (laughs) Uh, Possibly forever parting ways. Yeah, because... uh... She makes a, she kind of kind of reels from the kiss a little bit. Yeah, like it's like oh that then she says something like that felt like a commitment. Yeah, it feels like a commitment. You gonna be here tonight when I get back? That's the girl's line. Remember? You mean if you get back? Some fan. Some jump. Like, oh, only chumps race, even though I only like you because you race. And that's why we started going out. Chump. On the grandstand, Steve waits in his car as other drivers act as assistants to inform him of the night's challengers. And we see him shoot a few down. And after several hours, everybody leaves. Steve is up all night alone with his car on the grandstand. In the pre-dawn light, the scrappy Corvette rumbles out of the bushes. And when Steve sees Cal behind the wheel, still drinking out of a liquor bottle, he follows the vet to the starting line. They roll over a hill together, out of frame, and then come racing back into frame at top speed. Cal is so exhilarated by Steve's performance that he shouts encouraging words from his own car. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, you're doing great. Yeah, keep going. Cal spins out on a turn and tries to make up the time. When Steve gets to the turn that killed Buddy, he finally realizes what a stupid hobby this is and decides to slow down and let Cal overtake him. As luck would have it, road construction has begun around the next turn, and swerving around it, Cal launches his vet off a cliff, and it explodes on the rocks below. Or I guess technically it explodes in midair on the way down yeah, yeah, before yeah. it touches anything. <laughs> so it probably would have just blown up on the road either way. Yeah, the, so this is one of two like fiery wrecks that have occurred on Mulholland, yeah. and knowing how dry in California like hillsides <laughs> is like oh man I hope they had lots of fire crews there yeah. because that can easily get out of hand really quick it did look like this was not uh, like summer situation it mm-hmm. was definitely very foggy I, I would guess this was November-ish Steve parks his car and runs to the edge of the road where he finds Cal's stopwatch on the ground either propelled back up the cliff by the force of the explosion or thrown out by Cal at the last second mm-hmm. as a memento of their final race He inspects the watch, and we freeze frame for credits. For this last race sequence, Hopper insisted on driving the Corvette for some of the scene himself, so they set up a car with three compact Aeriflex cameras, and Hopper showed up to set drunk, carrying a six-pack, and the crew wouldn't let him into the car until the director said, fine, drive like that. Hopper disappeared with the car for an hour, despite the cameras only being loaded with six minutes of film, and when (laughs) he came back, the six-pack was empty. Jesus. King of the Mountain. That's the that's King of the Mountain, guys. Oof. I'm glad. I'm glad we got that whole Roger Buddy song plot resolved. Which one's Roger again? <laughs> and which one's Buddy? And which one's I don't Steve? Know. Why would you name one of your characters Buddy if they're all so fucking similar? But also, his name wasn't Buddy. It was Harry. Mm-hmm. Which but we hear he in one scene. Wasn't played by Harry. Harry Hamlin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like when we had a Jane that was not Jane Curtin in 
how to beat the high cost of living last year. But yeah, I uh, this movie is about three guys who I don't identify with that are all kind of interchangeable. Literally any of them could have done anything in any scene. Yeah. This movie needed to drop the songwriting plot. Like this, or the car a, thing. Yeah, I was like, is this a movie about cars or is this a music a movie about their musical career? I I I don't I don't know. Right. And yeah. also I feel like at the end of the movie, we're supposed to feel terrible for Buddy that he's going to be a rich songwriter who just signed a deal with a major studio. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, uh, little privileged white boy that your album is, you're going to make millions of dollars from this famous band performing your songs instead of you performing them. You're going to make slightly less money than you would have. And you obviously are establishing a career that you can turn into an album for yourself in the future. Exactly. Like, you, this is where you start. You start by writing songs for other people, and then you get money together to produce your own songs. Uh, if you go I wrote a song and someone told me that they were going to give it to a singer I'd heard of, yeah, mm-hmm. I would be ecstatic. Even if it was my least favorite singer, I would be like, I've heard of that person. I will make money from that. Yeah, Wonderful. If they told me Rebecca Black was going to be performing this song tomorrow, I'd be like, great. <laughs> uh I think the the person who's hurt the most by this movie is Tina. Yeah, like, because she doesn't get anything out of yeah. the deal. Well, but no, I mean, he did say that she liked he liked her a lot, so I figured that he was also giving her some sort of deal. Or at least keeping her in mind for something, but she's yeah. not a part of Cadillac Blue. I guess that's true. And they she's don't... driving off to some random like exhibition show at the Roxy at the end. Yeah, they don't explicitly say she got a deal, but... She is in a limo. I, I, but also, like, because I haven't heard the conversation of what... Uh, I don't know what any of their names are. Buddy, Jimmy, Steve, Link, Terrence. <laughs> You're making it worse. <laughs> not, not Buddy, Roger. not Steve. Roger, thank you. I didn't hear what Roger told to Steve. So I don't know if Tina actually got anything out of this deal. Yeah, yeah and I don't know if Steve <laughs> is mad at Roger at the end because he says, oh, you really sold him out, man. And then he died that night. Well, and that's the died. last time we saw Roger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh- and, and Tanner takes Tina aside and has conversations with her, and Steve gets mad about that. Yeah, yeah. like and taking leaves. her around is like, no, no, no. You wanted her to have a thing yeah. because you sold out your friend, so the only way that she's also going to get something is if he's like, yes, come and be a rock star. Mm-hmm. Is Roger supposed to be a bad friend? I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think he was a great friend. I think he did a good job of producing yeah if it wasn't for roger these songs wouldn't be performed or sold to anyone right i think the only thing that he did bad was lie about it yeah and if he had come out straightforward and said hey i sold your songs to this guy uh, i think it's the best for this other action. band yeah i i thought it was the best move and i had zero leverage to say no you can't have these songs because he doesn't fucking care right, if but he says so he tried he's yeah. like mm-hmm. look i tried to sell him us as a thing like we that i told him you wouldn't be thrilled about this but it was really our only option so i got you a bunch of money and your name is going to be known as a songwriter so yeah. let's move on but for for buddy to pretend oh well if it was good enough for cadillac blue then he could definitely have made the same amount of money with a no-name asshole performing the song it's like no wrong that's not how money works but i feel like the whole point of this movie was supposed to be something about car racing but all we (laughs) care about is this record deal yeah (laughs) i think weirdly the the moral of the story is that racing is a dumb hobby and people die doing it occasionally Mm -hmm. and it's not even that fun and these people do it anyway for the whole movie and then at the end the main character finally realizes that the whole plot was stupid <laughs> that everything he cared about didn't matter at all and and which and, we knew at the beginning so we, we're, we're just annoyed the whole time and and i feel like steve's gonna be in court because he has been involved directly in two deaths right on the same stretch of road <laughs> well i mean he didn't he i guess he was there yeah, very shortly he, after he was, buddy died he was present at both situations and racing racing in both like racing to catch up to buddy yeah but also now directly racing cow and there are witnesses now yeah like and he also thing. was arrested racing on that road a yeah. few nights before so like i mean this is this is going to be a big problem for him. I and even like. these aren't his first accidents because he told Tina, oh, yeah, people drive off the edge all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know how many people I've killed on this road? Hundreds. Hundreds of dead. 
I give it a thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> I give it a thumbs down too. There's there's no reason to watch it. I mean yeah. the uh, the the transfer is great, and I actually mm-hmm. like the directing in terms of some of the camera work is really fun. Um, even like within a room, or or the way that he directs the characters for their interpersonal relationships, like when yeah, Roger yeah. and Buddy are joking around in the room, or Roger and Steve were joking around before their song. Yeah, and and I and I feel like there there's an attempt to try to create some kind of I don't want to say supernatural, but some kind of thing like he starts noticing like at this at the turn that there's something wrong with the road and it's it's getting into him and that's and and is with, that the first step towards him deciding to skip the race yeah yeah and then with buddy's death and then that thing in the road he can't figure out what it is and that's when he says no i'm done i'm done with this and that's the thing that saves his life because because he would have come around and gotten hit by that yeah construction i was really hoping that that he kept hitting this this weird bump in the road and and like you know he he knows that bump that's like that's the bump on this road but then that's why the construction crew is there to to get rid of the bump so they changed the marker for him well he doesn't know where to make the turn and he goes flying off the road no 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 but like that was like the whole thing like the the that there was like a pot i I don't know i wanted there to be something like that the reason that the construction was there was was, because of what was bothering him about the turn yeah like that he was he was feeling some inconsistency with the road and maybe other people were too and that's why now they've they're trying to fix it yeah and but, but they don't even fix potholes. They're not going to come out and yeah. be like, "Oh, it's it's a couple millimeters uneven." Never yeah. mind. Bye. Yeah. Well, because uh, again, as I frequent Mulholland right, and Coldwater Canyon, extremely rich people up there complain about that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, because you know you 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 hit some of these potholes and they're really substantially deep holes. Yeah. And you know you you do that in a, with some low profile tires. Yeah. <laughs> you are losing an axle. Uh. Yeah. So like, there's there. Uh, constantly like just doing spot paving yeah they never pave the road they just fill in potholes constantly so it's even worse because now you're going you're hitting all these random bumps because there's just like patched holes yeah yeah but uh still better than a six inch deep pothole that's true but what i was thinking the whole time and maybe traffic was different in 81 than it is now i'm sure it was but i'm just like how on earth are you gonna get mulholland to 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 close down Mm mm-hmm and not for the have, whole twenty-three mile stretch of it, right, yeah, that's not, not going to happen. And not have that be like a nightmare of mm-hmm. a traffic jam. Yeah, because whenever I drive Mulholland, it's packed end to yeah. end. But I'm always doing it, you know, during, during rush like hour. shitty rush hour anyway. Yeah. When I used to have to like deliver DVDs to people out there, it's always a nightmare. In case it wasn't clear, it's a thumbs down for me as well. Yeah, it's a thumbs down. Um, Letterbox, what are we thinking? I have it in. 44 out of 55. Okay. I have it below improper channels and above earthbound. Okay. Richard. Right now I'm now worried I have it way too high. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm That's might. okay. You can keep it there. You know what I am? I'm going to keep it. It's pretty high. Um, I have it at 28. You uh, loved this movie, Richard. I know, Jeez. right? I mean, it's just Get like- a room. Like, <laughs> Well, because I don't feel it was badly made. No, it wasn't um, badly made. The, the story was a little all over the place, and it's uh, based on an article, probably a short article. They they had to add a lot to it to make it. Do a you movie. remember the last terrible movie we read? Or we watched based on a bad article. <laughs> on <laughs> an not, article, not a bad article, but an article. The last one based on an article. No, I don't remember. I'm guessing it's Hard Country, but oh know, yeah, it might, be, right. might have been another one in between. Uh, but here, here's what it's between. It's just below Blood Beach, but above Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. Okay. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree Chan with again, but those, but I think that you may have it too high. I agree. I think I may have it too high, but but, <laughs> but time will tell, I guess. Um, I put it in 42nd out of 55, which is just under Ruckus and just above Firecracker for me. Okay. I find that acceptable. I think another thing is coming off the heels of just a gigolo, and this was the next movie I watched. You were like, Helen "Oh, Clemson. wonderful!" And I was like, "Oh <laughs> so god, this, good. this it's movie, so much better!" Like, like again, we complain so much about the the plot, like what's the plot about? But at least it had more of a plot. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it was also well, it was more, and it was so little plot that it was like I can follow all of this very easily. Yeah. I don't even have to look at the screen the whole time. I don't know. I feel like I was equally annoyed between the two movies for different <laughs> reasons. I'm like, they're going in like the same spot. <laughs> 
Our director here was Noel Nosek. He also directed Best Friends, Las Vegas Lady, and Youngblood. Our writer was Lee Chapman, who also wrote Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. We reviewed her work last year with the screenplay for The Octagon. Later this season, she also writes All the Marbles. The other writer, H.R. Christian, also wrote the screenplays for 73's Black Mama, White Mama, and 74's Act of Vengeance. The music here was from Michael Melvoin. He has piano and keyboard credits on the soundtracks for Bullet, The Traveling Executioner, Clute, The Hot Rock, The Parallax View, and The Right Stuff. Cinematographer Donald Peterman, also DP's Rich and Famous later this season, as well as Flashdance, Splash, the crossover Splashdance that I just made up, Cocoon, <laughs> Gung Ho, Star Trek for the Voyage Home, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Point Break, Adam's Family Values, Get Shorty, Men in Black, Mighty Joe Young, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The editor here was William Steinkamp. This was his second film editing after Hide in Plain Sight last year. Later cuts Tootsie, Against All Odds, Adventures in Babysitting, Scrooged, Scent of a Woman, and many others. Harry Hamlin played Steve. He reminded me all over this film of Michael Ian Black. Oh, Does yeah. that work? Yes. For sure. Um, I, I, on the other hand, was getting, and now I'm trying to remember which one's which, because, again, I cannot keep track of which dude is which in this movie. He also reminds me a lot of Jason Patrick. Okay, sure, yeah, yeah. I was getting, um, I was getting Paul Walker vibes. Oh, okay. Not just because of the car? No, I think, I think, I think it was, like, a little bit of the chin and the eyes. Like, yeah. It was just giving And, and the length of the, uh, uh, the five o'clock shadow. He played Joey Popchick in Movie Movie. He's back later this year as Perseus in Clash of the Titans. He's probably best known as Michael Kuzak from 104 episodes of L.A. Law, but he was also Aaron Eccles in 12 episodes of Veronica Mars, Ned Lishman on Shameless, and Jim Cutler on Mad Men. Joseph Bottoms played Buddy. He's the brother of Sam, Ben, and Timothy Bottoms. He played Lieutenant Pizer in Black Hole in 1979. He was just... Tom Loomis in our Cloud Dancer minisode. Deborah Van Valkenburg played Tina. She was Mercy in The Warriors. She was Reva in Streets of Fire and Sandra Masters in MacGyver episode Rush to Judgment. Yeah. Uh, and she did all her own singing. I guess she's a singer right, yeah. as well. I, I, I'm not familiar with her as an artist as I am many artists. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but I'm always impressed when people do their own singing. So She was also on a TV series called Too Close for Comfort with Ted Knight. Richard Cox played Roger. He was Stuart Richards in Cruising last year. He was Lenny's dad, Max Frazier, in 13 episodes of Ghost Rider. <laughs> Dennis Hopper played Cal. He has experience in movies about teenagers driving off cliffs that dates back to 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. He's probably best known for his turns in Easy Rider, True Grit, his own The Last Movie, Apocalypse Now. Moving forward, I'm excited for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Blue Velvet, True Romance, but my favorite will always be King Koopa from 1993's Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Of course, he's also the villain of Speed, Waterworld, and Crash, if Crash had a bad guy, besides Paul Haggis. He also followed Crash to the TV series version that was, I think, the first original series for the Stars channel. Mm. I don't think that lasted very long, but... Dan Haggerty played Rick. His first credit was Biff in Muscle Beach Party which was part of the Frankie Avalon Beach Party series, but he's probably best known as Grizzly Adams from the 74 feature, the late 70s series, and the early 80s TV movie. Grizzly Adams did have a beard. <laughs> Seymour Cassell played Barry Tanner. He was the dad in Rushmore. He's Sam Catchum and Dick Tracy. He's Esteban in The Life Aquatic. And on this show, we've seen him so far in The Mountain Men and The Jazz Singer. Ashley Cox played Elaine. She was model number one in the nude bomb last year. She's back as Candy and Looker later this season, and she may or may not be related to Richard Cox, who played Roger in some way. But they're probably not. Lillian Mueller played Jamie Winter. That was a celebrity who was at the party for selling the songs. She played Beauty on Parade in the nude bomb last year. Cassandra Peterson played the angry neighbor. Yeah. She was Biker Mama in Pee-wee and Elvira in the Elvira movie. She and Pee-wee were both in Cheech and Chong's next movie last year. She was also a party guest in Coast to Coast last year, but I don't remember a party guest scene. I guess at the very end when they crash the truck into the house, uh, there's a party oh, going that, on. That's right. That's right. 
Buddy Joe Hooker played Fast Joe Otis. He's a very famous stunt coordinator, not to be confused with any which way you can director Buddy Van Horn, who is also a famous stunt coordinator. Uh, so far on our show, uh, Buddy Joe Hooker has worked on Defiance, Carney, Herbie Goes Bananas, and The Hand. He played one of Christopher Lee's bikers in Serial. He was a chef in Herbie Goes Bananas, and he was a bar fighter in Buddy Van Horn's Any Which Way You Can. He has hundreds of stunt credits and a bunch of acting credits, so he's all over the place. Kurt Ayers played Fat Burger. He was Art in Zapped and Jim in Mortuary. We saw him last year as Armpit in Midnight Madness and Duffo Weiss in Gorp. William Forsyth played Big Tom. He's Flat Top in Dick Tracy. And he's Evel, one of High's old cellmates from Raising Arizona with John Goodman. We'll see him later this season as Kenny in Smokey Bites the Dust. Joey Kamen played Suds. He was a pledge in Hollywood Nights last year. He's the voice of Freddy in American Pop earlier this season. He voiced Stegmutt on Darkwing Duck. He voiced Chris Carter on Creepy Crawlers, who I have to assume was named after the Chris Carter of X-Files fame, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it was 94 or something like that. That, that show was be. on the air. Uh, he also did the voice of Bang, the Monstar from Space Jam, who inherited Patrick Ewing's basketball skills. And he also voices Bosco in the Sam and Max games. Jay May played rhythm guitar player. He was the boy on the motorbike in Schizoid last year. Most of his credits now are for coordinating product placement in high-profile stuff. Amy Gibson played Roger's girl. She was Soldier's girl in Airplane. I think that's the lady who's crashing into stuff as she's waving goodbye and the plane is taking off. Gary Hudson played gang leader. He was Steve in Roadhouse. He's Sheriff Aaron Viva on Briscoe County Jr. He also directed an 86 title called Thunder Run about a truck driver moving plutonium being chased by terrorists. Yeah. Sounds fun. Anthony DeLongis was a gang member. Yeah. He's also a fight coordinator and weapons expert in all kinds of movies. He trained Indiana Jones and Catwoman how to use their whips. He was a stunt double for Frank Langella as Skeletor in Masters of the Universe, in which he also played Blade. He's Ketchum in Roadhouse. He played first Mage Culla in five episodes of Star Trek Voyager. He's Hans in 31 Days of Our Lives's. And he had three appearances on MacGyver, two as Major Nikolai Kozov in season three, and one as Piedra, the first season finale villain. We chatted with him about his work on MacGyver for our podcast for like 90 minutes. He was very generous with his time. Uh, we'll see him next as Rodrigo in The Sword and the Sorcerer. John Dukakis played Duke. He was Polo in Jaws 2, and he is the adopted son of Michael Dukakis, the former governor of Massachusetts, who lost to George Bush in the 88 presidential election. Juliet Marshall played Big Tom's girl. She was Muse Number no. 5 in Xanadu last year, and also Miranda's attorney in Mrs. Doubtfire. Douglas Durkin played Davy. He was Bible Louie in Gorp. He was Follett in Hopscotch, and he was Draper in Harry's War earlier this season. Later he'll show up as Burlington Cranston in Footloose. I think that's everything for King of the Mountain. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Nesting, which IMDb describes like so. A writer suffering from agoraphobia rents an isolated house so she can concentrate on her writing. She doesn't know that the house is a former brothel and is inhabited by the ghosts of dead prostitutes. It sounds excellent. We leave you now with a trailer for The Nesting. Fear visits many places, but this is where it lives. <laughs> Nesting. You cannot escape the fear. You cannot forget the face. You will not live until you've killed the nesting. You are not going crazy. Then what the hell is it? It's when your dreams turn to nightmares and your nightmares turn on you. It goes beyond the supernatural. 
Beyond the psychological. Beyond the realm of reason. The nesting. The horror grows. The mystery builds. It's she. It's got to be. The madness infects everyone around you. And then, you're all alone. Inside your mind. Coming soon.